0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And if you're hearing this on Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, we are indeed live in our new time slot here on Sirius XM 132. Our phones are open. We always love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866 with stories, questions, suggestions. We really do love to hear from you. So 1-844-WARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Today, I'm particularly excited to be talking again with writer and journalist Eileen Zimmerman, who I had the good fortune to meet at the New York Times New Rules Summit last year. She's recently released SMACKED a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy, which Newsweek called one of its 20 most anticipated books of 2020. And I have to tell you, it's unbelievably compelling and important. It tells a story of her husband's secret addiction Yet it's also a stirring depiction of how Eileen navigated the chaos and ultimately regained control of her own life. For those of you who are new to her work, Eileen has been a journalist for three decades covering business, technology, and social issues for a wide array of national magazines and newspapers. She was a columnist for the New York Times Sunday Business Section for six years and since 2004 has been a regular contributor to the newspaper. She does all this while pursuing a master's degree in social work and lovingly parenting her 2 increasingly adult children so once again our phones are open 1-844-WHARTON and we'd love to hear from you give us a ring do you have questions about recognizing addiction in someone you love or sharing your own story of surviving someone else's chaos we'd really love to hear from you 1-844-WHARTON and with that Eileen welcome back to the show and congratulations Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. I have to take you with me wherever I go. I'd be happy to, because you're not only a great writer, you're a fabulous dining companion. So sign me up.
0: Well, oh, so nice to be here. Thank you.
1: So, Eileen Smack tells multiple stories of your husband Peter's secret addiction, his death, its impact on the family. And the role that his work, culture, and personality played in all of it. And I know that it's part of why I think the whole nation is starting to buzz about it. But it also gives us your story, including your search to make sense of it all. So I want to start there. And talk to me about how was writing actually part of the process in healing and discovery?
0: Well, writing was a huge part of that process. So as a person who's always written that tends to be the way that I process the world around me, good and bad, <laughs> And right? And after this happened, I found that while I was in the midst of it, I could not really make sense of it until late at night when my kids were in bed or, and all the estate work and all the other emergency kind of work was put aside for the day. I could sit down and kind of write what happened that day, and I would. I kept a journal during that time, and I would write what I was feeling because somehow after I wrote it and got it out, I felt better and I could also try to understand what was happening and try to make sense of things that didn't make sense anymore. And so, and and then in writing the book, um, I had a little bit of distance from the event, but it did really help me try to put together pieces and understand what was happening with Peter, my ex-husband, what was happening with me. Um, and it just, it gives it a perspective. I think writing gives you a perspective, at least for me. I don't have when I'm in the midst of things, when I'm living them right then.
1: So have to imagine that part of it was just the catharsis of figuring out what was in your head, and then finding a way to wrestle it into a narrative and some kind of order, because you yourself didn't understand why and how all this happened.
0: I didn't understand why and how it happened, and so I started to collect clues the way an investigative reporter would or a detective would, like his phone, or I cleaned out his house. So I certainly got to see a lot of things he never thought I would see, mm-hmm. um, whether that was drug paraphernalia and drugs, whether that was the things he kept in safes, the fact that he had safes in his house with drugs in them, you know, mirrors and and – I'm trying to pharmaceuticals and medical supplies and also just the kind of the paraphernalia that goes along with drug use, like spoons and scales and little gadgets that I had no you know, no idea what they were. And then understanding um he kept he kept a couple of journals while he was using, some of which didn't actually make any sense. I didn't include this in the book, but it did give me a sense of how compromised he'd become cognitively just from what he was using and the way he was living. Um and And I I tried to put things together to create a narrative for myself that made sense.
1: So um, in this process of your writing to make sense out of it, and you are a writer, I'm curious, just in a professional context, of what was the arc from these are your late at night journal entries to you wrote a really important article in 2017 about it to actually moving to the point where... Um, You've written about it so much that it's a book. You're ready to tackle a book and engage in the professional world of pitching, selling, promoting a book.
0: Okay. So what happened was I started keeping journals, and it became almost a physical thing. Like, I felt like I couldn't sleep. I was so anxious. I was very depressed and fearful, and writing was the only release I had. And then I had a meeting with my editor at the time at the New York Times about stories because I was still freelancing and trying to make a living while all this was going on. And I told her what happened, and she said, you're going to write about that, right? And I said, I want to, but I don't, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, what are you, what are you finding? And I said, well, I, I just can't believe he's the only one that's like this. I said, you know, he was under so much pressure, and he's in between all of his notations about drug use and dosages. He has all these client notes. So I felt like it was all mixed up. And two things happened that made me decide I would write an article about it. One was that the day that he died, it was that the the medical examiner said to me that she saw a lot of this, a lot of high-power executives dying of overdoses. Um, and the last call that he made on his phone was into a work call. And I think that's what started it for me. I thought, you know, really? When you're dying, you call into a conference line? Like, it's, So I thought, I have to figure this out. And she um, she said, well, Let's, let's go down that road, and let's. I said, I think there's some stuff going on in the legal profession. I want to see if this is endemic, and so she said, okay, and so I started focusing my investigative efforts that way, and just um, c- uh, calling law firms, calling lawyers' assistance programs in different states, putting out queries on uh, sites that journalists use and different forums, asking for people to talk to me about their drug use or their alcohol use or what was going on around them, and I heard from Quite a few people that were very courageous, a lot of people already in recovery and out, so they didn't feel like they were compromising themselves. And um, I, and then uh, six months after Peter died, Hazelden, Betty Ford, and the American Bar Association did a landmark study of substance use and alcoholism and mental health issues in the legal profession, which showed clearly that there was very high rates of depression and anxiety, alcoholism for sure, some drug use, but... I think um it's been determined that the lawyers most of the lawyers did not answer that question because they were afraid, mm-hmm. um, but the lead investigator on the study, Patrick Krill, told me he is sure <laughs> that it was because they were afraid and and lying, not because they don 't use uh, drugs right and so th- so i put, i 'm sorry
1: no it's okay so because part of this is that the the whole legal community is and and this is a proxy for other Um, Highly ambitious, highly successful, money-driven professionals um, are living with such perpetual stress.
0: Yes. Chronic, chronic stress.
1: And a, a strange dynamic of chasing success.
0: Yes. Exactly. That fe- they're, they're highly ambitious, too.
1: And so that this comes together to prompt the addiction. Talk to me about what you learned about that kind of like super ambitious pursuit of success and how it relates to addiction.
0: Well, it seems to be, and obviously I'm not a scientist, I'm a journalist, but what I, what it seems to me from the interviews I did and what I found is that is that these people are getting caught up in this cycle where you're kind of you know, keeping up with the Joneses, you, can't, you can't, I kind of can't stop. It's addictive in its own right. In fact, one lawyer wrote, he said, you have to focus on the work addiction because that's where it starts. And so first you're really ambitious because you want to achieve partner or you want to be senior vice president or you want to be, um, you know, managing director, no matter what profession you're in. And then, you know, you get there and the money's really good. And I, and it seemed that people would get to a point where they, they were striving, 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 and it was sort of like, well, now what? You know, so then you, you try for more or more money and then that's not that satisfying. But this whole time you're still under all this enormous stress because now you're in a really high position and you're living a life that requires a pretty high income. So there's that, you know, you you have to keep that up. And eventually I think what happens is these, well, what seems to happen is you start buying things to make yourself feel like the stress and the hours are justified. So if you have all this money, but you have no time to spend with your kids or really go on vacation with your family or do much of anything except work and monitor work from home. You wind up buying big houses and lots of expensive cars and your kids go to posh private schools. And, you know, cleaning out Peter's house, I saw, you know, tons of stuff he didn't even use. Clothes, you know, dress shirts with the tags still on them, you know, bicycles, televisions, stereo systems. Just like, I think it just, it seems to be this thing where you're, There's no other way to make yourself feel better. And probably underlying all this is that you didn't feel that great to begin with.
1: There was something
0: there. Right. So instead, you just thought, you know, no, I'll be really ambitious, and I'll make all this money, and I'll have the house and the cars. and You know, it sounds cliche, but it it bore itself out in my research, you know. And -hmm. and there are plenty of sociologists and psychologists who study this who confirm for me that generally extrinsic things like the... um, The prizes that people want do not make them feel better. It's the intrinsic things, community, volunteering, spending time with people, feeling mission-driven. Those are the things that really give us um, deep satisfaction.
1: And it makes sense. Um, There's a question that Adam Grant had asked at our last conference, which was, um, what motivates you more? And what motivates high performers more, not losing or winning? And Not
0: losing or winning others, oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: and it sounds like part of it is uh, being in a lifelong race to not lose, yet there's more and more to lose all the time.
0: Oh, that's such a good way to put it. Right, right. So, And this may sound overly philosophical, but I will say um, it felt like... It's also this, if you're constantly busy, you can't think about the existential reality of your life. I mean, I think, (laughs) you know, I mean, I can say it's having been married to Peter. I remember one time, one of our friends, we were having like a barbecue and he stayed inside and worked. And she said, you know, you're going to die someday, Peter. And he was like, thank you. Thanks a lot for that. You know, you know I'm not going to die. I have a conference call and two meetings tomorrow morning. Right.
1: <laughs> I'm not allowed to die. I won't be dying. <laughs> it's, it's not on the schedule. Important, right. So while this was going on, so on one hand, we have the picture of Peter, high, high power, high income IP attorney in California, living right. the big life. But you guys were divorced at this point. And that was not your life. And it also wasn't your life while you were married to Peter. Um, That's right. So talk to me a little bit. Let's, like, go back in time a little bit to your early marriage. And you were writing. um, He had his journey through chemistry and into law school. At what point – how did you see your economic reality in your early marriage?
0: That's a very good question. I actually – I wrote briefly about that after I was divorced for the online magazine Salon.com. It, our reality, the reality was that Peter felt wholly re- responsible for his success, even though we were together during law school and I was paying the rent. And, and, you know, he made it very clear to me from the get-go that he could do it without me, and he wanted me to know that. I don't, you know, I'm not in, I wasn't in his mind, so I don't know, you know, why that was, but he felt very, he felt ownership over His professional success and his income and he made it very clear in many ways that I was benefiting from some of that um, after we had kids only because we had kids together you know even if he loved me his job was not to support me and so our marriage was very much like that you know um, I paid a certain percentage of the bills based on what I earned and he paid you know he paid a larger percentage because he earned so much more and as the disparity grew I was in a marriage where I felt poor But my husband was rich and my kids were rich.
1: This is so intriguing. Can I unpack a little bit of this for a minute, Eileen? Because I want to anchor this in what were some other social norms at the time um, and ways that you guys were very progressive. But there was also another dynamic at play. So... Um, Like I know for my mother's generation, it wasn't uncommon that women worked while their husbands earned their professional degrees and got launched on their careers. Mm -hmm. And there was the idea that was an investment you made in family. Um, Then there was also... I think in our generation, a trade-off of who worked at different points, so that you could kind of launch the family, launch the careers, and parent. Um, really, and you were investing in the family. Yet at the same time, there became this um, kind of hard division of responsibility when Peter started really having an income.
0: Yeah, you say that so beautifully, and it was exactly. I was. I thought. I mean, I was. I, I am, and I was a feminist, and I we were very progressive. But I was living my mother's marriage. I mean, she put my father through graduate school, and then he left her. Like, oh, I mean, they God. stayed together for 23 years. He had a million affairs. And she um, she didn't work. In her generation, it was seen as, you know, you didn't want to have to work. It was, You know, you stayed home with your kids. Um, and then she had to go back to, to working at some job after he left. And for me, I did think I was in – I thought we were investing in our – our life together as a family, with or without kids. I thought, you know, if we're in this together, then we're there for each other. But I don't think Peter could ever do that, and I lacked um, the self-confidence and the self-esteem and the belief in myself to advocate for myself. So I just decided he was right, and that was the way it should be. And And so I I bought into that, and he wound up becoming increasingly wealthy and reminding me, like, look, I pay the mortgage. You know, like, you should be grateful for that. (laughs) And so I was. So I became, and we had this oddly traditional relationship where I was working as a freelancer. So I would work when my kids were at school or napping or asleep. And then the rest of the time I cleaned the house and went grocery shopping and arranged play dates and did all the things that the wives in the 1950s would do, you know. (laughs) And that that some, some, you know, moms do now, stay-at-home moms wind up largely responsible for the domestic stuff, which uh, is the, right, you know, whether or not we want to say that, it's true. and it's and it's drudgery you know so i'm cleaning bathrooms and he gets to nap because he pays the mortgage
1: right even it's- though it's um, it's this ironic, almost bipolar financial yeah. relationship. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Eileen Zimmerman. She's a journalist and author of the really powerful new book, Smacked, a story of white collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. If someone you know has struggled or is struggling with an addiction, and this topic resonates with you, give us a call. You don't have to use your real name, her phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844 942 So, Eileen, in this odd dynamic, as it sounds to me with Peter, it, sure. it, part of what you explain in the book was, it was there was actually a deeper um, perpetual issue here, and that was Peter's narcissism. Yes. At what <laughs> point did you understand what a narcissist was and how this was affecting you?
0: I can. I actually sort of remember the moment where I realized, I didn't have a name for it, but I realized that something was very amiss. So I I knew that our lives were focused around Peter, but I always thought, well, we have to because we can't live here without him. He's our economic engine, and that's how I we used to tell the kids, well, Daddy's the bread and Mommy's the butter, like his iron.
1: And then I like your optional decoration.
0: I'm the option. I'm I'm what makes it kind of taste better. But, <laughs> And I had a friend that said, why do you do that? Like she saw it as so demeaning, and I saw it as the truth. So one time after Peter and I separated, we really wanted to try to be good co-parents, and we went to a counselor that was helping us figure out how do you parent separately when you're so used to parenting together, which was sort of ironic because he was not parenting much, Mm -hmm. he was sleeping a lot and working. And he started to talk in this session about everything he'd done for us, and he just, he, it's just this litany of graduate school and this and how much sleep I didn't get. And I worked so hard and I was under, you know, sleeping in my office and all the things he'd done in his life and what he's bought us and the house and the kids' schools and everything. And I was sitting on the other end of the couch crying and he didn't even see me. <laughs> he just, he just was talking. And then the therapist looked at me and I said to Peter and him, I said, it's like I wasn't even there. It's like I wasn't even in your life any of this time. And Peter just looked at me like he just noticed me. And he was like, no, 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 you were, you were there. You were writing. <laughs> and I thought, what is this? And then later on in my own therapy, I realized he's really narcissistic. He's, he's really self-involved and everything's about him. And also a, a hallmark of this is that, that he would never kind of own his own stuff. Mm-hmm. If something went wrong and it really was his fault, he would blame everyone else. And, and he was so good at gaslighting you that you felt like it was your fault, you know, that you had done something wrong. So that, it wasn't until after the marriage ended, to answer your question, that I realized he's really narcissistic.
1: As you, As this came to light for you, and you finally had a, you know, it's amazing the power of words that you can like grasp that idea and then you can carry the idea to to understand yourself better. Um, You started to look back and you share this in the book and talk about um, why you were actually primed to respond to a narcissist and stay with him as long as you did. Talk to me about early on, how and when you were losing your voice because of the dynamic with your parents right
0: yes and i think probably a lot of women list, listeners will re, will relate to this i think um you no know, women have a unique place in, in where we've been you know we've been kind of so put down in a society that's largely patriarchal but my family you know my father was absent all the time and worked all the time and he had two jobs and his second job it was a second job he drove a limousine for extra money but he spent a lot of that time having affairs long affairs with other women under the cover of this second job so he had complete freedom in their marriage and my mom was home with us and then when he left she had to go go had to find a job but um my dad also I had two sisters and he just I think he really I mean it was very clear he had wanted a son (laughs) and he didn't get it and he kind of put us all down and he put me down I was really underweight growing up um and he would criticize me for that and he would often say like it's a good thing you're smart because you're not pretty you know Mm. And um, and even incentivized each of us. There wasn't a lot of money in my family. We were very financially insecure. But he had saved $5,000 for each of us, and we could only have it if we got married.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Right. It's Like the most important thing to invest in was marrying you off? He wanted us
0: off of his plate, even though he barely took care of us. And so I started to see my value as – I started to see myself as a burden rather than – and he treated me that way. And then I put in the book that even when I – we told my dad we were getting married. As soon as Peter got up to go to the bathroom, he looked at me and said, don't blow it. Ugh. Like, you know, basically, you're lucky that somebody wants to marry you. And I said, I know. Like, and I, I, I believed it. You know, and I say this having loved my father, you know, I just, I figured he's right. Who's going to want me? And so, you know, this is the dynamic. Um, I saw what happened in my parents' marriage. I, I didn't grow up feeling really valuable or attractive or intelligent. And so here's this guy who's like handsome and smart and at this point really sweet and just thoughtful and set up to be successful in life. And I thought, yeah, I gotta I gotta do what I can to hang on to this. You know, I can't lose this.
1: You know, and, and, and um for the listeners who haven't had the good fortune that I have to have met you, and not that Aww. it matters, but that <laughs> you are you are beautiful, you are intelligent, <laughs> you are delightful, and it's particularly heartbreaking to hear and also to see how much I I think so many of us empathize with it how these early messages shape our self esteem and then are uh, um, the way that we're primed to enter into the relationships that follow. In the book, you talk about how you planned your wedding and right. um, the negotiations with Peter around it. Could you share a little of that with us? Because it was amazing to me to hear how, even at that moment, you were losing traction as an equal
0: right oh my goodness even I mean even like the minute we moved in together if I had been a person who had some modicum of self-confidence or belief in myself I would have thought this is not acceptable I'm getting out of this but I didn't but we were planning our wedding and he basically said essentially I'll pay for it. Cause he had, we didn't have a lot of money. I think our wedding cost about $2,500, <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a while ago, but still it wasn't, it wasn't that much for a wedding, but he had like three pay periods in one month. And we were like, Oh, it's almost like getting an extra paycheck. So we'll use that for the wedding. So the idea was for him, I'm going to pay for the wedding. You're going to plan it. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to hear about it. You know, and I don't want our families involved. And so that's what I did. I executed his vision of our wedding Um, And I I found everything that was in the parameters he requested. And um, there's a scene where I I went home, and my mom had a really beautiful wedding dress. She got married in the 50s, and she had this just – she had great taste, and it was a handmade gown. And I tried it on, and I actually thought it was lovely, and I got – I stood up and Peter said I look like the good witch of the north and he started laughing. And I thought, Well, I'm not wearing this dress because he's right. I look ridiculous and all instead of thinking, I wish I could have thought like you know, like, don't say that. You know, I like this dress. I just thought, Oh, he's right, I'm ridiculous. I'm ridiculous to think I could wear this and so As opposed to
1: seeing the beauty of you feeling good in that dress.
0: I wish he'd been my therapist. <laughs> so good. No, he didn't. He just thought like that, and it wasn't what he wanted. And, and he didn't want to wear a suit, so he wore a long kind of leather jacket that looked like a suit. This is you know this is the early 90s, and he was very grungy. Like he loved you know grunge music and that whole fashion scene there. And my mom was just like, why isn't he wearing a suit when she showed up? And I said he didn't want to. And she said, I'm very disappointed in him and i just thought oh god but you know i wanted him to, i wanted him to at least wear a normal jacket but he was just like this that's not the wedding i envision and that's not the wedding we're going to have
1: it's so ironic cuz we hear all the time about the bridezillas and in, in this case, <laughs> it was the right. total opposite, that with a combination of how you were primed, um, your commitment to the relationship and Peter's narcissism, the wedding was all on his terms and all about him. And it and you were just, an, it seems like an aid to execute.
0: Yes, exactly. I basically, and that's how our marriage went. You know, he was the economic engine and he was the guy who steered the ship. And I just did, for instance, I just did what he said. I remember him starting to look at houses. We were renting a house. And I said to him, why do you keep circling ads in the real estate section and going out to look at houses? And he said, I think we should we should think about buying a house. And it was like, oh, OK, I guess we're buying a house. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean, I, I think he was doing it because he felt like it was the right thing to do for his family. It's just that he never felt the need to consult me.
1: Right. So you weren't really, to say you didn't have agency is probably an understatement. We
0: so, need... yeah, I was like, oh, OK, I guess we're going to buy. Yeah. And I would and also I would I would be like, yeah, no, he's right. He's so smart. This is a good time to buy. You know, I'm pregnant with our
1: second child and, you know, all of that stuff. I'm talking with Eileen Zimmerman. She's a journalist and author of Smacked, a story of white collar ambition, addiction and tragedy that was just released on Tuesday. I'm going to take a cue from your book. Um, because one of the things that you do so artfully is that you bounce between different time periods as we move Aww. like from where you are now to what happened then. Um, and I, I want to jump into kind of the middle of your marriage um, okay. and the point at which you were getting divorced. How long had you been married for at this point?
0: We had been married for almost 20 years.
1: And what was it that prompted the divorce? So,
0: Peter, well, I will say we were... We were very unhappy, but it was one of those things where I figured we were in it until our kids were were out of the house. Um, and I and I, I figured he knew we had a lot of problems, and I had told him, if we don't get some help, some counseling, and you don't really commit to that, <clears throat> I can't see us staying together after our son goes to college. So he wound up having an affair with someone that he had actually gone to law school with who lived on the East Coast. So he traveled a lot for work, and it, was really, it wasn't hard for him to do it, and I really trusted him, and so I just, I wouldn't, I wasn't looking for clues, I just, I had no idea, but that's sort of what, that was the catalyst for the end of the relationship, although I will say he he wanted me to stay married to him while he let this thing play out, oh. <laughs> True narcissistic fashion, and I said... <laughs> You can't really have a wife and a girlfriend at the same time. So.
1: <laughs> so at this point, you've been married for 20 years. Peter's career, he's working, working, working. Yeah, um, he's a partner
0: now. He's a, I think he was a third or fourth year partner.
1: And you've been writing all along, but never really making, You mean, you make a salary, but not more oh. than like sixty dollars or $70,000 a year at max.
0: Oh my gosh, that was my, the best year I ever had was 70. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, generally, especially working because my kids were still school age, my my average year was about forty-five thousand.
1: And so now you're married for twenty years. Peter's been the economic engine. You're getting divorced, yet at this, yet in your divorce agreement, you didn't really come out all that well. What happened? What happened was
0: at that point, Peter um, and I will tell you, Peter was making about a half a million dollars a year, and I was making forty-five thousand dollars a and year.
1: And that's a lot of money.
0: That is a an enormous amount of money. And he wound up tripling his income before he died, almost tripling it. Oh my God. But at the time, he said, well, you know, we didn't have he wasn't making that. For, you know, he had only been making – earning at that level for about, I would say, two, two years, two or three years, which is a long time to be earning a lot of money. I'm not saying it wasn't. But he had law school debt, and we didn't start off with a lot of money, so we were trying to save for retirement and our kids' college, and we had a mortgage. And so he said, let's not waste a lot of money on lawyers. We want the same things, you know, I thought. So we kind of – we worked out things ourselves, which meant largely that Peter laid everything out – you know like all the money that we had saved and how he thought it would be best we had to split everything down the middle and then we got a mediator which i found um which was a man who was a a therapist and a divorce lawyer because i knew if it was a man peter would trust the guy he Mm. tended to think that female therapist sided with me so i did and and we went for three sessions and split everything down the middle and i asked for a certain amount of money peter wanted me to to get much less and we settled somewhere in the middle. But, um, and it sounds like it was a lot of money. It was actually, it was $8,000 a month before taxes. But I had a $3,000 mortgage and I had to pay taxes on what I got. So it, it really wound up being about $6,500 a month. And it was San Diego, California, I know. <laughs> and I didn't earn that much. I mean, it, it wasn't really enough, um, especially for for this life that that we had built and that he had wanted. So he left and I wound up with not quite enough money and um, I had to work even harder to earn more money. And, and in the end he did quite well. He left, he wound up living right by the beach. He had, he got this beautiful house. He had four cars. He had, you know, he just did a lot better than I did financially after the divorce, which is generally not the narrative that lawyers will tell you when they get divorced. They act like their spouses take everything and, you know, and it's, this horrible thing for them
1: so in this process did you really at that point had you gotten a full picture of peter's finances or no or was he presenting everything and you were still trusting it
0: exactly exactly i mean and it's and and this i take responsibility for this i really didn't know much about money because during the marriage i was i mean he worked so much that i had so much responsibility for our children and then my own career and just the domestic the daily domestic Duties that I, he took care of investing money, and I just trusted him. And he would, you know, he would show me if I asked, but otherwise it was really I left it to him. He enjoyed it, and I figured we're in this together. We want the same things, so I wound up, you know, at a real deficit, not really understanding anything about saving money and making money and investing money. Um, and he had all that savvy. And um, and and when we split up, he would tell me that he really wasn't getting the raises he should be getting, and the firm was, like, shortchanging him. And, you know, the re- we had gone through a recession, the, re- the Great Recession, right before we split up. I mean, we split up in 2009, mm-hmm. so we were still in it. And he was like, no, nah, they're cutting back. And so I thought he was telling the truth. I thought he had this really expensive life, and he probably didn't have enough money. He was, you know, he was borrowing from his draw, so he got a certain amount of money each month. And then at the end of the year, when the firm... Looks at its overall profits, it is divided between the partners um, depending on how much seniority and how long they've been there and how much business they have. It's a complicated formula that I'm not privy to, but I thought he he was not getting much. Turned out he was getting plenty, um, and when he died, he was making you know well over a million dollars. And I thought I didn't think he was making anything close to that.
1: So, when did you dis- it was w- after he died that you discovered all of this because you wound up taking on the responsibility of being executor of his estate
0: I did I did, and I wanted to be because there wasn't anyone else really to do it that especially no one else that loved our kids um not the way i did and um and there was you know when we were in San Diego we didn't have family, close family you know anywhere near us so um and I felt like I wanted to make sure I settled his estate so that my kids could have, you know, be set up the best they could for their future. And, you know, he was he was spending a lot of what he had on drugs. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, you know, they were going to be <laughs> set up for life. But I, feel, I felt like whatever there was, I wanted to make sure that I took care of it for them.
1: So, Eileen, if I'm tracking the kind of all the details here, well, A, you have his sudden death. Um, despite the fact that he he appeared sick for a long time, Um, you know, not at all prepared for this, and that you found him and that you're dealing with cleaning up the mess emotionally, um, Mm -hmm. taking care of your kids, and also financially. Mm -hmm. How did you... I I mean, I have practical questions about how you learned to manage the finances, but first, how did you manage yourself in the midst of this?
0: Oh, I did not. I? I wound up, There's a lot of different emotions I was feeling. I felt really aggrieved. I mean, it's like, even though Peter could be kind of a bully about money and difficult, when, he, when it wasn't about money, we were still friends and co-parents. And he was also a really interesting human being who I'd known for, you know, half my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I felt connected to him and I cared about him. And I think he cared about me too. And so I was feeling all of these conflicting emotions like I was so sad and grieved and I was also so angry and I wound up just kind of focusing on my anger like that was the thing that got me through all of it I just I was furious at him for what he did I felt so selfish and also it meant that for the next two years I was going to have two jobs one was uh, as a writer and the other was going through the probate process in California which is tedious and time-consuming and just awful And everything in his life was a mess. So um, I managed it by just staying really angry, and that powered me through it. I was just like, I am going to settle this estate. I'm going to get my kids fixed up. I'm going to might make sure my son applies to college, you know, I'm going to get it. I am going to just be the person that everybody can count on.
1: It is amazing what fury can do to motivate a person.
0: Right. It's amazing. It's incredibly motivating.
1: So in the midst of this, you are motivated, you're angry, and you have to deal with this stuff. Right. Um, how did you learn to take on the finances, given that that was a place that that was a part of a life that Peter managed?
0: Well, I will say that started with our divorce because I was so disappointed in myself after that, that I that I hadn't advocated more for myself during our divorce um, process and that I didn't really understand what you do with money because I never felt like I had it. I was in a marriage that had money, but I didn't feel like personally I had any. So I wound up getting all female advisors. I got a female advisor at Schwab and even in – when Peter died, I wound up with all f- a female attorney, female financial advisors, a, f- a female partner at an accounting firm. I just felt like I wanted women to help me understand what I was supposed to do with money. And so after my divorce, I, I got a really good um, female advisor at Schwab who pretty much explained to me, how do you read a financial statement? What is important? What, what don't you have to worry about? What you should be looking for? And so I had become much better about that. Um, I wasn't investing in the stock market on my own, but I knew when my portfolio was gaining or losing, and I knew that I needed to put money into my SEP IRA. You know, I understood some basics that I actually hadn't before, and I knew how, I learned how to refinance a mortgage and things like that. So when he died, I wound up assembling a team of women to help advise me, and I had a female financial advisor and a, and then a female account accountant, and they they were the ones who helped me understand like, you know you're going to have to file back taxes and he's going to owe a lot of money because he hadn't filed his taxes in three years. And in selling the house, um, the realtor was a husband and wife team and they kind of helped me understand, you know, what you have to do to get a house ready for sale, you know, what goes where in terms of what money comes to you after the sale, what escrow meant, all of these things I really didn't understand. So it was like this intense financial, and real estate,
1: I would say, education. <laughs> right. Know, <in> this, <laughs> know, Mandatory year, and 30. urgent. <laughs> Mandatory
0: and urgent, exactly.
1: For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Eileen Zimmerman about her new book, Smacked. If you've ever tried to help someone overcome an addiction, reclaim your finances, if the story resonates with you, give us a call. We'd love to hear your voice. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844 942 seven78. Six, six So, Eileen, another thing that seemed to be happening at this time was that not seemed to be happening is actually an urgent and kind of quick thing that happened is you were not just having to take over management of the money; you had to help your kids process all of this. And in the book, you know, part of what um, you give us in the narrative journey is what was a frightening and confusing experience of watching Peter get. Um, more and more debilitated, thinking it was psychological, thinking it was physical, Um, the guilt that everybody felt um, when you discovered that he had died. Um, But what happened for you and for the kids when you discovered um, it was actually addiction and it wasn't a sudden accidental overdose?
0: Well, I think at first there was enormous relief in that the personal responsibility that they that they were both feeling that they should have seen it and they should have saved their dad that was alleviated because it was explained to them so well by the <clears throat> there were two retired nurses that <clears throat> excuse me came to the house when when Peter died to help they do this with families and so they were explaining to my kids you know there's nothing really that you can do to help someone who's struggling with an addiction you know only they can help can decide to help themselves and at this point my son especially was thinking he should have taken his father to the hospital or called an ambulance and he was 16 and his father had said leave me alone and so he didn't and he, and i think it was a great relief but then afterwards i especially in talking to my daughter about it there was an enormous amount of shame and guilt and i felt it too like i think we thought of ourselves as a family that was you know well educated and sophisticated and we were you know, and my kids especially—they were affluent. You know, they weren't that kind, whatever quote unquote, kind of family. You know, where someone dies of a drug-related illness or a drug overdose, and yet they were that family.
1: Mm-hmm. And she
0: said it was—you know—she was ashamed, and she said I was—I was ashamed to talk about it. She felt like it was, um, a, like a, smut—a big black mark on her father's reputation as an upstanding human being and a good citizen and an excellent lawyer and a really smart man. Like suddenly he was also this other thing, which was, you know, far outweighing all the other things that he was. So she was very, she was very worried about that. And so I did have to, I mean, we felt very ashamed, but on the other hand, I also felt like, look, if this happened to us, we are not the only family experiencing this. I felt like we should be talking about it, but Nobody was talking about it, so I didn't talk about
1: it. Mm-hmm. So, Eileen, embedded in that, um, you, you shared this concept that you were ashamed in that, you know, in the moment you were like, we weren't that kind of family. You right. write in the book about part of what you discovered were your own biases about who is an addict and where addiction happens. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and how you came to understand it?
0: Yes. Um, I... I had thought of myself as you know, hugely progressive. I should say at the time I was volunteering at a school in San Diego, a wonderful school for homeless children. And almost all the kids in the school were either African-American or Latino, or Latinx, I should say. So I, I felt like I was like understanding a lot more about different cultures and about people that live in poverty and all of that, and here this is happening in my life and I, I don't recognize it. And so I realized I had a lot of implicit biases. And I believed that an addict, quote-unquote, and I know the language now is to say a person with an addict, diagnosed with an addiction or something. Mm. So, so and
1: that's, that's designating that the addiction is an illness and doesn't define them as a person?
0: Exactly. And I, do, and I do mean that when I say that. But I thought in my mind at the time an addict, quote-unquote, was someone that was very poor. I don't know that I thought it was a person of color necessarily, but I definitely thought it was somebody homeless, mentally ill, on the side of the road, you know, Someone that lived in a neighborhood I, I would never drive through, that kind of thing. And, and I was forced to confront that in myself, and it's very embarrassing. But it's also really important for me to understand that I had these biases, and um, I'd like to think I don't anymore. I now understand that um, that addiction and, and unhappiness and mental illness affects people at all ends of every spectrum, socioeconomic and every other spectrum you can think of, and that there are people struggling everywhere so um i that was a a hard lesson for me to swallow that that i had I was this person that I thought i wasn't I was a person that believed that someone like Peter, who was white and well off and well educated, would never um fall victim to addiction
1: One of the ironic um, uh dualities that comes with this bias that I think a lot of people hold is also that um there's a kind of uh High level of drug use and abuse among affluent kids. Yes, and as for sport and exploration, and also to ease their own existential uh, as a kind of a really dangerous attempt to ease their own existential and emotional pain. How did you, in the pres- ha- leading up to this discovery, and then afterwards, how did you address the issue of drug and alcohol use with your kids?
0: Oh, <clears throat> that's a great question. Uh, you know, I will say, ironically, when my <clears throat> excuse me, daughter was in high school, she, uh, I remember she was going to go to a party, and we were pretty open about it. Uh, I was, anyway. Peter, you know, he, he wasn't there that much, but I, I'm pretty open about drugs and alcohol and sex and everything. And she said, look, I know I'm going to go to this party, and everybody's going to be drinking, and I'm gonna wanna, I want to stay over. And, you know, th- this is the reality. I'm trying to be honest with you. And so we talked about it, Peter and I, and we decided, like, we came up with this thing where we were like, it's okay, but just text us once an hour, or once every hour and a half, and let us know you're okay. And, you know, and we explained to her, you know, we explained to her all the, the dangers and what could happen, especially about guys, and she had a boyfriend, but, you know. So we had these very honest conversations. After Peter died, you know, I had a daughter in college and a, and a son that was a senior in high school, and I... I did talk to them a lot about how I feared for them using anything recreationally because if you are the child of someone that has an addiction or uh, or is an alcoholic, you have a 10 times greater chance of developing that yourself. And so so we talked a lot about that and about a lot about the dangers. And also they were struggling with their own depression and anxiety from what happened. Mm-hmm. And it, And so you don't need to be taking a depressant, which is alcohol all the time. It's just going to exacerbate it. So we had a lot of these high-level talks about it, and um, but you know my daughter was in college and she was 18, 19, you know, so people were drinking a lot and they were doing a lot of drugs, and that was the culture she was in. I think they're both much more careful than probably they, they were much more careful than the average person their age, um, and and we we still talk about it a lot, and they are they are highly aware that it is a big risk for them, and I think it's made them stay away from it you know, probably more so than other people their age.
1: It It's so complicated for all of us who are parents to protect our kids from these things that can be real scourges on society. Oh,
0: gosh, yeah. It's I don't know how... it's It feels impossible.
1: <laughs> I know. I feel like I mean, I'm trying to hold back the ocean.
0: Passion. Yeah, it's like fighting back the ocean, right?
1: So the other thing, the other, you know, kind of pernicious thing that's like fighting back the ocean is also um, reframing ambition and success. How did you... How have you been talking to your kids about this in the aftermath of it?
0: Well, we do talk a lot, you know, because for a while my daughter thought she wanted to go to law school. I think she just wanted to still please her dad, even though he isn't here anymore. And I said, you know, we talked about being careful about the things that you strive for, because in the end they may not be the things that give you satisfaction. And a lot more we talk about having less stuff and feeling more that your life has purpose, which sounds like a cliche, but turns out to be very, very important, because when you feel that your work has some sort of mission or purpose to it, um, and it doesn't have to be lofty, you know, you could be, you could um, have a job that's administrative in a dental office, let's say, but if you make the clients that come in there feel good, or feel at ease, or they're not too worried about having the orthodontist, you know, tighten their braces, or the root connect, like, that is a really good thing you're doing with your work and your day, but, um, and, and so, We talked about finding meaning in the work you do and feeling like you're doing what, you know, at least trying to do some of what you want to do that you're interested in and not being so focused on the stuff that comes with the trappings of success. I interviewed a guy in the book, Robert Frank, who wrote a book book in the 90s called Luxury Fever. And he said that people, when they look at what is successful, they judge themselves by who is immediately above them and below them. And if that is the way you're going to look at the world, you're always going to be striving for the the next bigger house or the car that your neighbor has, or, you know, they went on vacation last year to Costa Rica, so you got to up your game, you know. You can do it that way, which is this never-ending ladder, or you can decide what's important for me, what does success look like just for me, you know, and then and reframe success in that way. Absolutely. So for, me, for instance, it's not, it isn't really you know, I never figured, I figured I was never going to be rich. I don't think you go into writing. You know, so <laughs> right. I, I'm okay. You know, I, middle class isn't, isn't, you know, you know, I'm fortunate. I'm okay. So I feel like I'd like to do some good in the world. Like that would make me feel useful.
1: And to and, that end, you've actually done something kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> so so talk to me. So in is it in the context of this that you've gone to get a master's in social work?
0: Well, I will say I had been thinking... I had done this volunteering with the homeless and and I had been doing more writing about I did a story for The Atlantic online about this homeless school and I also had been writing for The Times about like sexual assault on campus and feminism and uh, and you know other political and social issues and found that very very um, fascinating and interesting and gratifying and so when I found Peter. Um, even in that moment in my shock, I thought, I got to think about how I'm living my life because this is going to happen. It's not going to look like this, but you know, please my, God now. Right. right <laughs> I know. Right. But at some point I'm not going to be here either. And I, and I think it's something that most of us don't want to think about, but I decided in that moment, I wanted to think about it a lot. And so I did. I thought, what do you, how do you want the rest of your life to go? What do you want it to look like? And I decided that maybe I could that I, what I would do is go back to school for social work and I would work within the social issues that interest me and then also be able to write about them. And so I thought I would be interested in end-of-life care because uh, Peter's very <clears throat> lonely and, and I think, scary death. Mm-hmm. But I, I also, the first year I had field work, they said, well, what what do you want to do? And I said, well, I just don't want to work with addiction. So, of course, that's what I wound up <laughs> getting. <laughs> And I, and I loved it. I really did. Because what I realized was that, and these were really poor people that were struggling with some serious addictions and mental health issues in the Bronx, in New York, but they were all really interesting people who had really complicated childhoods and, and lives. And a lot of the issues were the same as they were for me and for everyone else I knew. You know, they didn't feel their mothers loved them enough or they felt neglected or, you know, a lot of it came down to feeling unloved as cliche as that sounds, and I found that really interesting, and it also felt like I could help, um, and so I really, really liked that experience.
1: And so how much do you have left, and how are you going to finish grad school while you're promoting a book? Oh, God knows. I know. I had to take a semester of fieldwork off. I have one left, so I'll finish it
0: from May to September, and I'm still taking classes. I have adult psychopathology right now, so after, <laughs> we, get, after we get off the phone, I'll be studying schizophrenia, <laughs> but... Um, and then it's all, I'm taking courses all the way through while I tour, and then, um, and then I'll finish up in the summer.
1: Eileen, you are an inspiration. The Aww. book is a gift. Um, <laughs> not you. to mention all the good you're going to continue to do in the world. If people want to find out more about you or the book, where can they find you?
0: They can go to my website, which is www.eileenzimmerman.com. And Eileen is spelled E I L E N E, so it's a little bit weird.
1: And if they want to follow you on Twitter?
0: It's Eileen, oh, on Twitter is Eileen Z. Yeah,
1: so at Eileen Z, right?
0: At Eileen Z, right. Fantastic. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm cutting No,
1: what's on Instagram?
0: It's at Eileen Z Writer. Eileen Z was taken. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic.
1: Eileen, thank you so much for all of it. Good luck with everything that's in store. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.